So I've been thinking a lot as we begin this new year about our church and where we are and what God is up to in our midst. And I've been thinking a lot, especially as people have sort of asked me, Jordan, what's next? What's next? What are we doing next? And I'm convinced we're not doing another capital campaign next. So the question for us now is, what's next? What is God calling us to do? So I decided to preach a little bit about this, but I'm doing it in a very unusual way. I want to turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles or you have your phones and you want to turn there to the book of Nehemiah, it's just a couple books before Psalms, so it's way back there. A couple little books right in a row, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Even though the books are before the Psalms uh, and before Job there, and so they're sort of in the middle or towards the beginning of the book, uh, they're actually some of the latest books in terms of the, the overall timeline of the Bible. It's written, some, this is some of the last stuff written in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible is actually organized by genre. It's organized by type of book, the way your library would be. And so it, these books, Nehemiah, falls back in the history books, back in the stories of the history of Israel, instead of being chronologically at the end. I should say, too, that the book of Nehemiah is uh, about Nehemiah coming into Jerusalem and trying to rebuild the walls and rebuild the structure. And one of the things I'm keenly aware of is that a lot of our political discussion right now relates to building walls, Right? Uh, and I'm not trying to make a comment on that. So if you think that's where I'm trying to go, please understand. Disclaimer right from the beginning. Uh, I'm talking about different kind of walls. Okay. If you want to understand Nehemiah, you've got to get a little bit of the layout. And I have, over time, sort of laid some of this out in terms of the chronology of Israel. Israel is, uh, uh, for a while there, uh, you get King David and you have sort of this one nation. But eventually... When David's sons and, and grandsons and uh, all the family kind of goes on, Israel gets divided into a north and a south. Okay? One's called Israel and the other is normally called Judah. So that gets kind of confusing when half of Israel is called Israel. Uh, but that's what happens. You got Israel, you got Judah. And in 597 BC, um, some, uh, especially the north, is taken off into Babylon. The, the people of Israel are made. Uh, to be in exile, taken to another land. Some are left over time in that land and forced to, re- to intermarry with the, uh, the foreigners. And those people generally settle in an area called Samaria, and they're called Samaritans. Uh, so that's where Samaritans come from. So 597 B.C., the, there's the first deportation to Babylon. In 586, 11 years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys the temple. That's really the fall of the rest of Israel. And the temple is wiped out. When we say destroyed, there's really nothing left. It just all comes crashing down. So that's 586, most of the rest of Israel, that area of Judah, is taking off into exile. And they are forced to spread out in exile. So it's not just we move this city to this city. You're spread out and you lose touch with your family. And it's hard to follow your religion when you're in all these different foreign lands and spread out. That was the point. 
The point was to take these people and spread them out so they lose their heritage and eventually they just become part of the conquering nation. Now, in 539, so that's 47 years after the temple's destroyed, the people are allowed to start returning back. That's 58 years from the earliest exiles. Okay, Life expectancy is not that long in this time. So what you understand is there are a lot of people that are moving back to Israel that have never lived in Israel before. They don't know what it's like. In fact, we know from the the biblical record that a lot of them move back and they have Babylonian and uh, Persian names. They don't even have Jewish names anymore because they've lived in these other parts of the area. Many have died and many are born in in, uh, those other nations. In 516... The temple is rebuilt. That's the work of a guy named Ezra. So the book before this one. In fact, those two books are often put together as Ezra and Nehemiah or Ezra and second Ezra. Um, Ezra really does the work on the temple. And in 516, the temple goes up. um, But the walls don't get built. The walls don't get built at that time. It's sometime around 475 B.C. that the story of Esther happens. If you're familiar with the story of Esther, Esther goes before the, queen, the king and uh, ends up being able to save and give favor to the Jewish people that are about to be really squashed out. In about 458, Ezra, who had really worked to build the temple, tries to get the people together to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So let's build the city back up. But everyone is threatened by this, and so uh, the attempt has to be aborted. You have to stop, and they're told they're not allowed to build the temple or build the walls. In fact, what they had already built, a lot of it was torn down. A lot of it was burned, or a lot of it was taken over. Um, So here we sit, based on the chronology given in the book, about 445 B.C., Okay, so we're talking, we're talking 150 years after the Jews started getting taken into exile. Um, we're talking um, nearly 80 years after they're allowed to return. And still Jerusalem is not built. You know what that means? There's nobody around that really remembers the walls of Jerusalem. Nobody around that really remembers Jerusalem being strong at all. It's weak. And that's where we come in to the book of Nehemiah. So I'm starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now what happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanini, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. We don't know too much about Nehemiah. His name really means Jehovah or God comforts. Um, We don't know his father at all. We don't know who he is. This month of Shizlev would have been somewhere what we would would be equivalent to us of like mid-November to mid-December. So it's in the winter. And the 20th year probably relates to the reign of the Persian king that Nehemiah is serving. So, So that's why we think about 445 B.C. 
He is in Susa the citadel. That was the winter residence of the king of Persia. So the king of Persia during winter would go to this, fort- this fortress, okay, this palace that's fortified, and would rest over the winter. And then it's normally in spring you would go to war. So his brother Hanini, who we, we again know nothing about, comes with some other Jews from Judah. And Nehemiah asks about what's going on in the city. How are the people that have returned there? Because Nehemiah doesn't himself live there. The report is that they are in trouble and in shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. It's destroyed by fire. Again, probably related to when they started trying to build the wall and uh, they were forced to take it down. Probably they forcibly burned it and tore it to the ground. So what? They don't have walls. How can you describe this as a great trouble and shame? After all, New Brighton does not have a lot of walls, right? We're not used to our cities having walls. But in those days, walls were critical for the survival of your city. Walls were critical for defending your city. Walls were critical for marking where your city began and protecting your culture from outsiders. It's not just well-being. It's not just defense, although it certainly is. It protects the culture, protects the sense of community. Controls who comes in and who comes out. What businesses would want to be in a place that, that has no security, right? So there, there's not a lot of industry going on if this is an indefensible city. Because as soon as somebody else tries to come take the city, the business knows they're going to be out of business. To strengthen the wall is to strengthen the people. To inspire the industry and to protect the culture. It must also say a lot about their self-view, right? Imagine you're the chosen people of Israel, and this is your great city, and every day you walk through gates that are marked with fire because they were burned. Every day you see that the wall is crumbling. You see that you have no protection. You're reminded that if anybody else decides they're ticked at you, they can come in and can light you up in a heartbeat because you are indefensible. Imagine the lack of security. A lot of us don't actually have to imagine it that much, right? We've been in those moments. We've been in those times where something happens in our life and we don't feel any security and we don't feel any hope and we lose a sense of who we are and what we're here for because we feel so threatened by the bad news or what happens or what we think may happen. This is the place that Israel is in. And what they need to do is secure the walls. They need to build them up. They need to get a sense of security. They need to get a sense of of feeling good about themselves. An identity that they can kind of gather around. I think churches can be like this too, by the way. One of the things that happens, this happens to people who are depressed, right? When people are depressed, they don't take care of themselves. They look like people who are depressed. They don't have the energy to take care of themselves anymore. And I've seen this in churches too, right? That churches who don't feel good about themselves, that don't feel real secure, don't really feel like they have a future, they, they don't take care of themselves. And suddenly stuff gets run down, and stuff is broken, and there's dust bunnies the size of actual bunnies, and nobody seems to care because actually that's how we feel. The walls must be built up. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before God, the God of heaven. 
And I said, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you. And day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So he's weeping for days. He starts to pray. And obviously, if he's been praying for days, we don't have days worth of prayer here. This is an overview. And his, we think, a lot of people think this is his journal, that his, his record that of, of what this was like for him. And I want to note a couple things. First of all, he did. He wept and he mourned for days. Wept and mourned for days. Such an emotional response. What do you weep for? What are you sad about? What do you care about? What has God given you in this world that you're discontent over and need to do something about? Oftentimes we don't. We don't have a lot of emotional response. We don't have anything that we really weep for. What are you passionate about? When he hears Jerusalem, and notice, he doesn't even live there. He's got to ask about it because he doesn't live there. But when he hears about it, he weeps. Because he understands the danger that those people are in. And God gives him a heart for it. What does God give you a heart for? You can't have a heart for everything. Do you ever notice that? Everybody wants you to have the same heart as them. So they care about this cause and they care about this charity. But what has God given you a heart for? What do you weep for? He doesn't live there. He hears at a distance, but he cares anyway. Note also that he's aware of the scripture. There are probably a lot of those people who went away and came back who did not know the Bible, did not know the scripture, did not know all the stories, but Nehemiah does. He understands this moment in the greater story of scripture. And so the scripture impacts how he should view the world. So so let me ask you, how well do you know your scripture? How well is it a part of how you interpret and see the world? Notice too, that Nehemiah starts his prayer praising God. This is amazing, right? How do you start a prayer praising God when the prayer is about how bad things are? How do you start by praising God? That's not always easy to do. And that is not always our first instinct, right? When something bad happens, when we're going through a lot, our first instinct is not to praise God. Our first instinct is to be mad at God. That is not Nehemiah's. Starts praising God, who is great and awesome, who keeps his covenant and has steadfast love. What would your prayer life look like if you started every prayer with praise, even if you didn't feel like it? And so he prays, Lord, let your ears be attentive, because we've sinned and some bad things have happened. And now in the scriptures, he remembers the words of Moses and why Israel is in the position. Verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to, to a, the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. 
Moses had to say this a lot to the people. Because the people of Israel had been in slavery. And he spent 40 years in the wilderness trying to teach these people how not to be in slavery, but how to actually be free and follow God. And Moses again and again tells them, look, you got to get this right. You got to get this right or God is going to scatter you. Now God will always let you return. God will always let you return, but he will scatter you. And Nehemiah, knowing this story and knowing these words, understands that this has happened, right? That the people have been scattered, and yet now they have returned. But what Nehemiah looks at this and says, wait, God, hold on a second. This story isn't right. You said you were going to bring everybody back. You were going to bring the scattered back to this place so that you would be worshipped and you would be praised. (coughs) Except it's not the same place, Lord. The story isn't finished yet. But one of the things he understands is that the people are still being unfaithful to God. That the people have still struggled. That the people haven't fully returned back to God. They've still sinned. They still need to confess that sin. I know a lot of people who are like this, right? They have moved away from God in their life. And they come back, and we see them in church. And Some of you may be in this position, but they haven't really come back. They haven't really returned Either because they're mad at God because of what God did or didn't do in their life. Or they think God must be mad at them and would never accept them back. But that's not Nehemiah's word. Nehemiah's word is, I got a loving and an awesome God who is ready to forgive and ready to accept you back. And we got to return the whole way. We got to return the whole way and God's going to do his part. The, steadfastness love, the steadfast love of God stands ready to forgive. And so if you're here today and you're holding back a piece, right? If you're not fully returning to God, I'm telling you, you can give that peace to him. You can trust him. He continues the prayer in verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. To the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. That's a really weird way to end the chapter, right? He's going through all this prayer. He's got this problem. And he says, you know, Lord, give me success with this man. And you don't know what this man is. Who, what man are we talking about? And then there's this little line that probably should have been at the intro, right? Now, I was cupbearer to the king. But it's kind of a neat literary device to save it till now. The cupbearer of the king was the person who was responsible for what the king ate and what the king drank. Okay? This was one of the king's most trusted people. Okay? He was responsible to try wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. He was responsible to try the food to make sure it wasn't poison. He was responsible to tend to the needs of the king. Okay? He, he's, um, he's very close to the king, right? The king's most trusted person. It's the person that's always with the king, always traveling with the king. The king goes to, win, to winter at the, the Susa Citadel, and guess what? The cupbearer goes too. This is a person who has a position of influence. He's got the ear of the king. He's got the opportunity. So he reminds, go back to verse 10 then. He reminds God 
of his great power and his strong hand. And calls on God to do something. To be attentive to these prayers. To be attentive to the servants who do delight to fear your name. Lord, Lord, don't, don't forget me. Don't forget these other people. There, there might be a lot of people who are sinning, but there are also a lot of people calling out to you right now in faith, begging you to show up. So give me success. Give me success. And then he lays in that little piece of information that he's the cupbearer of the king. And he is in a position to do something, to say something about the problems that are going on. What has God put you in a position for? What has God in your life given you opportunities to do something about, to influence? I look around in this room and some of you are retired and have some time on your hands. Some of you have businesses and you have people that you're talking to all the time. And some of you have all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of groups that you meet with, all kinds of exercise groups that you you go to, all kinds of opportunities in your life that God has uniquely positioned you to do so that you could be a minister in those places. Hear my words. So that you could be a minister in those places. Look around this room. I cannot be a minister in all those places. I can't be at your work and your work and your work and your work and I can't be at your retirement and I can't be at your retired days and I, I can't be all those places. God calls us all to be ministers in the position that God gives us an opportunity to be in. And what Nehemiah knows is, okay, I'm the cupbearer of the king. I've got something I can say here. And as we go on, we're going to see what he does and how that position gets him the opportunity to do something about the problems going on. We're also going to see that, that Nehemiah's work is going to lead to resistance. Not everybody's going to be happy about the work that he's doing and the changes that he's making. And we're going to get to see how he responds to that. For now, I hope that this story starts to sink in a little bit for you. Starts to mess with you. You kind of marinate in it a little bit. As we go over through the next few weeks. I think it has a lot to say for us as a church. I think we have been in a position where God has really blessed us with the opportunity to do something about our walls. Right? To strengthen this church. Strengthen this infrastructure. Uh, strengthen the building, strengthen how we make decisions, strengthen a lot of things about where we are as a church. The question now, I think, is what is next? What has God strengthened us for? What has God positioned us for? What has God prepared us for? And in your personal life, where do you feel insecure? Where do you feel cracks in the walls? Where do you feel like you're not able to be yourself because you're too worried? Where do you need to learn how to return to the Lord? Where do you need to remember that God is loving and gracious? What do you weep for? What does your heart break for? And what has God positioned you to do? What works has God set out for you to do in your relationships? and in your positions, and in your authority. May the story of Nehemiah, as we wrestle with it, inspire us to action. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the example of Nehemiah, and I pray that you would let it mess with us. That you wouldn't just speak through the words of Nehemiah on Sunday morning, but speak through the story throughout the week. 
Challenge us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.